And that goodness of God is displayed here in the scriptures. So open in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. And while you're looking for that, let me just encourage some of you to pick up some of those black Bibles, paperback Bibles that are in the foyer. And around our community, there are these little libraries. You see them, right? In different places. Just a little box with free books to borrow. How about sticking your Bible in there? You realize that the Bible is being read more and more and more around the world, that the distribution of Bibles are increasing worldwide. There's a reason for that. People are looking for hope. People are looking for answers. And that's not just in the Ukraine or in Cuba or elsewhere. It's here in our community too. So pick up a Bible and stick one in there. Well, somebody might complain. Well, that's okay. Stick it in there nonetheless. And if people want to borrow and read it, let them borrow, read it. And even keep it if they want to. But they're out there. The Bibles are out there for free. Stick one in there. Let somebody borrow it. Our text this morning again is chapter 15 of the first of the Gospels. And I was, I was reading through gospel uh, through the Gospel and it came to chapter 15. Um, I must say that uh, what struck me is the sight of the blind leading the blind. Uh, it is a rather pitiful sight, isn't it? The blind leading the blind. Uh, but the truth is, in all reality, I think we possess, we all possess a particular blindness to the degree of blindness that we all possess. Uh, we are blind in certain areas and we don't necessarily see how blind we are. Let me give you a couple of examples of areas in which we may be blind ourselves. Take, for example, the angry man who blurts out words of rage in anger, inappropriate anger. And he says, well, it was righteous indignation. It was righteous anger, just like Jesus Christ had. And we justify, he justifies his angry outburst. Or maybe the tight-fisted person who refuses to give and says, well, I just want to be a good steward of what God has given to me. But really, you're just keeping more to yourself. How about the, the woman who says, after a long uh, conversation of gossip, and says, well, now you know how to pray for her. Blind to our blindness. How about the person who cheats and says, well, it was for a greater cause. I needed to cheat on my income tax so that I could feed my family better, so that they could enjoy a better vacation this year, or whatever it may be, for a greater cause. It's still cheating. We tend to be blind to our blindness until somebody points it out. And we usually don't like that, do we? I know I don't. Well, here we have a matter of the blind leading the blind, and it all begins with what Gabe read to us Chapter 15, verse 1, we see the issue of being unclean. If you're reading like I am from the ESV, it refers to those who are defiled. If you're reading from the NIV, it refers to unclean. Whatever the case, the word there in the original Greek language is referring to a Jewish belief of being ceremonially unclean. In other words, you are unfit 
for approaching God and worshiping God or being right before God. Why? Because you are ceremonially unclean. You are stained by some particular sin that you have not dealt with. And so the Jewish belief would be, what they would say, is that you are defiled or you are unclean. In fact, the word there literally means becoming common. Becoming common. In other words, you're doing whatever is common to man, and in doing what is common to man, you do what everybody else is doing. And you become then unclean. You become defiled. And as we see here in chapter 15, verse 2, there's a particular group of Pharisees and scribes who approach Christ, and this is what they say to him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, if you're a mother, you know how important it is that your children wash their hands before they eat. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the text this morning. We're not talking here about dirty hands filled with dirt or germs or whatever it may be. Here we have these Pharisees and the scribes, we're told in verse 1. Pharisees, of course, were the ultra-law keepers of the time. These were the men who were highly revered as the epitome of piety. When you saw a Pharisee come, you would say, Wow, I hope my children become like them one day. I wish I could be so pious. And they walked up and down the streets knowing that people admired them because they were so pious. In fact, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They were not like the common folk. And we also here have, in verse 1, the scribes. The scribes were the Jewish lawyers of the day. Now, by Jewish lawyer, I don't mean they were partners at Goldman and Goldman on 42nd and Park. What I'm referring to is that they were the teachers of the Old Testament law. The 365 Old Testament laws that God gave through Moses. You remember when we studied through the book of Exodus. And they were the teachers of that law. And they were the teachers of the ethics behind the law. However, in the process, they added to that law many, many other laws. And so now they are approaching Jesus Christ and they're challenging Christ. And they're saying, look, uh, Jesus, uh, we're told that your disciples are not doing what is right. And the reason why they're not doing what is right is because you are teaching them wrongly. It's your fault that they don't wash their hands. You and your disciples are like everyone else. You are just common. You are vulgar. And that's what vulgar means. Vulgar means common. There's nothing pure about you, Jesus. You have violated our tradition. Now, what is this tradition? Notice here, they did not say you have violated the law of God. They said you have violated, verse 2, the tradition. And the tradition is a reference to the oral tradition that the Jewish community, the Jewish leaders, had passed down from one generation to the other. Now, for hundreds of years, these were laws that they added to the law of God. 
In some cases, they simply add it. Sometimes they simply try to explain the law of God by adding another law. And they more than double the laws of God as if 365 laws were not enough. And so now they have this oral tradition. Now, eventually in history, somebody actually took the time to take that oral tradition and put it in writing, and we call it the Mishnah. And so now it is in writing. But again, it's still the same thing. These are laws, man's laws, added to God's Old Testament law. And what I find amazing about this Mishnah, or this oral tradition, is that at times, actually many times, the oral tradition of man will trump the law of God. So when they have to see which one will I obey when they contradict, they'll obey the law of man instead of the law of God. And in this case, the oral tradition was that of hand washing. It was a purification rite. And it required that you would take about four ounces of water and you would pour it into your hand and you would let that water run down to your wrist, sometimes down to your elbow, depending on how pious you want it to be. And then you would take your fist and you would crush that water into your hand as if to say, I am cleansing all that impurity. And then you would repeat it in your other hand. That was the oral tradition. Now, they were not concerned with germs. What they were washing away was supposedly sin. It was a a, a picture of washing away the sin that I have incurred. Maybe I was out in the market earlier and I came across a Gentile and I shook his hand. Now I'm impure. Maybe I touched a carcass and now I'm impure. Maybe I stole something, now I am impure. Maybe I was so hungry I could not resist that pork chop and so I took just a nibble. Jews were not to eat pork and so now they are unclean. Whatever it was, they were now tainted by this sin. We see a hint of this purification right in John chapter 2 you'll recall that's the record of the first miracle that Christ did publicly at the wedding in Cana and you'll recall that there were six stone jars there each filled 20 to 30 uh, gallons of water and Jesus Christ took those six jars and he turned them into fine wine Now there's a little homework for anybody who wants to dig a little deeper and maybe you can study the correlation between the purification of water being turned into wine by Jesus Christ as his first public miracle. That should be interesting. I would love to read whatever you write. Well, the word got out here that the, the disciples of Christ were not practicing this purification right. So the Pharisees and the scribes are now going to confront Jesus Christ about about his slacking concept of purification. And we look and say, how silly, how silly. Really, you're going to make such a big deal about that? But think about it. You know, what they did in the past is not always so different than what we or the way we think today. You take, for example, saying grace before you eat. Is it a good idea to pray before you eat? Oh, yes, it is. Is it a good idea to thank the Lord for the food that's on the table even before you try it? 
I think it is. Sometimes I think I'd be more thankful if I prayed after I ate. Does Christ set the example for praying before you eat? Yes, he does. You know, there are various lessons that we learn and convey by simply praying before we eat. But does God mandate that we pray before we eat? No, he does not. Is it a sin to not pray before you eat? No, it's not a sin. But how often do Christians think, oh, I sinned because I didn't pray before I ate? And it's pretty much the same as what we see here with this purification, right? By these Pharisees. My friends, I'm all for praying before you eat. There's great value in that. Christ set the example. Likewise, he set the example about washing feet when people come into your house. Do you do that? In fact, he said, do that. We should pray. It'll do good for you. It'll be a great thing for you. However, it is not mandated of you. And here we have this purification, right, which was a practice of the Jewish community, and maybe there's value in it, but I must say it was not a sin for the disciples not to practice this right. And so at verse 3, look at what Jesus Christ does. He does this so often, again and again and again. He takes that challenge, that question they ask of him, and he responds how? By asking another question. Verse 3. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Oh, they must have been surprised when he said that. And then in verse 4, he explains what the law of God actually requires. The law of God says this, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Things have changed. Why is Christ bringing up this concept of mother and father honoring your parents when the Pharisees are speaking about this purification rite? Well, here's what the tradition, the oral tradition said, verse 5. Jesus Christ makes it very clear. He says, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Now, I must say, just reading it casually, it's kind of difficult to, uh, to understand. So let me explain it to you. Here is what the oral tradition would say. The oral tradition would say, if your mother was to call and say, Son, my cupboards are bare. Honey, my savings account balance is at zero. My social security check won't be in for another two weeks. Do you think you could help me out? You could say, according to the oral tradition, Oh, Mom, the money I had set aside for you, I promised it to God. Dad, I gave at the temple. And obviously God takes precedence over you. But son, you still have 90% you can live off of. Can you give me just five? Oh, sorry, Mom. But I can't live off of 85%. I already gave my 10%. That I was going to give to you, full-heartedly, I gave it to God because I felt obligated to give it to God instead. Uh, you see, 
the rest is all mine. I needed to live off of. This is what the oral tradition said. It said that if you give to God or if you give at the temple what you were going to give to your parents, then you are absolved from any responsibility to your parents. However, what did God's law say? God's law said, honor your father and your mother. In fact, if you go to Mark chapter 7, which is the parallel passage here, Jesus Christ makes it clear that this is just one example of the many times you do this sort of thing. This was called a korban, a gift to God. So Christ is looking at these Pharisees and saying, hold it, let me get this right. So you are letting your parents go hungry. And now you're coming and telling me that I am defiled because I don't wash my hands before I eat? Are you kidding me? This is just one example, Jesus Christ says. And let me just make a note here for you. It's absurd what they're doing. You would agree, correct? But I want you to see that this is the inevitable absurdity. This is what will happen when you begin to replace God's word with your own ethics. When you begin to replace God's word with your own standards, it will result in inevitable absurdity. When you take your standards and replace them with God's. Rather, you replace God's with your own standards. And this is the reason why we can do that. We are sinners. God is not. Our standards will always fall short because we are sinners. God's standards will always prevail, will always be right, will always be just. Why? Because God is sinless. And left to ourselves, and you know this to be true, we will always justify what we know is wrong when we do it, when we want to do it. We justify our own sins. And so, my friends, in order for us to live properly, in order for us to live well, we must maintain the standard of God ethically. Whenever we begin to truncate the standards of God, whenever we begin to slice away at the standards of God, we will find ourselves in deep dilemma. You take, for example, this chaos of transgenderism. It makes a lot of sense to those who are outside of Christ, to those who feel different than what their DNA tells them. But it has produced nothing but chaos, and now it has overflowed even to something as simple as women's sports. Now one of the leading women female champion swimmers or athletes is a man. Absurd? Yes. Consider the havoc wreaked by establishing today what we have is no penalty crimes. If we had just maintained the ethics of the scriptures, we would not have that problem. 
It's absurd, and yet it's become common. It's the confusion created by same-sex marriage. It's the angst created between the haves and the have-nots. If we had just maintained the ethics of the word of God, these things would be resolved. It is the hatred bred by believing that I am superior over others. If we had just kept the standards of God, these issues would be squelched. But we have instead replaced God's standard with our own. And the result is angst, hatred, confusion, deeper and deeper trouble. Well, Jesus looks to these men. Look at verse 7. He calls them what? He says, you hypocrites. And he quotes from Isaiah. And you can read it for yourself in Isaiah 29, 13. Or you could read right there in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Christ says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. (laughs) Teaching as God's word the commandments of men. My friends, what we see here with these very pious religious people, teachers of the law, lawyers, right? What we see them doing is all external religion. It's all form. There's no inner reality. It does not stem from their heart. It's just external. It's just for show. It's just what they do. In fact, it's become their lifestyle. It's become just the way they act, how they act. You know, my father used to work in Manhattan in the jewelry district, and on occasion I would spend the day there with him just watching him make jewelry. And when he was working in Manhattan, uh, one time he got into uh, the elevator on a hot, hot summer day like today, and and there was a man of uh, full Jewish garb uh, with his hat, that long beard, uh, his shirt, uh, a, a shawl over that with a vest, and then a outer coat and he was just pouring sweat and he looked at my father and said I wish I could dress like you and my father said you can he goes oh no I cannot this was his tradition this was what was required of him man made laws as if they were God's laws We do the same. Maybe not so extreme, maybe not so obvious, but we tend to do the same things. I'll show you in a little bit. But it was all external, my friends. It was external religion. And you'll notice here at verse 10 that for the first time now, um, Jesus Christ makes this issue a very public issue. Up until now, his discourse, his arguments with the Pharisees and the scribes were generally very private. Now, look at verse 10. He calls the people together. Whoever was there, he says, come in. I want you to hear this. He calls them in together. And he says, hear and understand. In other words, listen to what I'm about to say and reason through this parable I'm about to tell you. And he tells a parable. Verse 11, by the way, you should be aware, you should be reminded that a parable is simply an illustrative story. A parable is a story 
that uses everyday episodes, everyday experiences in order to convey a very deep spiritual truth. And in this case, the everyday experience is consuming food, eating food, something everybody does every day. And here's the parable. It's just one verse. Christ said, verse 11, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. It is not what goes into your mouth that will make you unclean. It is what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Well, like many of the parables of Jesus Christ, this one also needs some explanation. And that's what we have beginning at verse 12. Now, if you go over once again to Mark chapter 7 and you look at verse 17, you'll see that Jesus Christ and his disciples now enter into a private place, into a private room. They're alone together talking to each other. And at verse 12 of Matthew 15, the disciples look to Christ and now they have a question for him. Look at what they say to him. They say, are you aware that the Pharisees were offended by your saying Are you aware that these Pharisees were offended by this parable of yours? I I just find it amazing that they would ask Jesus Christ, are you aware? Did you know? (laughs) But it does show to you the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ was very clear. But there's also still a, a note of consideration on the part of the disciples towards these Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, we're highly esteemed people, and, and the disciples are not so willing to pull out of that. Uh, there, there's still a sense of like, well, you know, I know they're wrong, but look at them. They're very pious individuals. Uh, you keep in mind that the Pharisees placed a high emphasis on what they consumed and what they did not consume. And it does sound like Jesus Christ is contradicting the Old Testament law, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like Jesus Christ is saying, go ahead and eat all the shrimp you want. Don't worry about eating pork or hoofed uh, animal, uh, meat from hoofed animals. Um, It seems like Jesus Christ is just disregarding all of the dietary regulation. And here's another little piece of homework, if you will. Go over to Mark chapter 7, verse 19, and look at the commentary there given to us by Mark. And you might want to write and study about that too. I would love to read it. And in explaining this parable, Jesus Christ uses two pieces of imagery in order to help the disciples understand. The second one is of of a blind guide, and that's verse 14. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. But the first one is this, verse 13. He uses the imagery of a plant, and look at what he says there at verse 13. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. The idea here is that every individual is equated to a plant. You are a plant. I am a plant. And we are a plant planted in the field of God. And strictly here, the field is referring really to Israel, the the Jewish chosen nation. And he says that the farmer will go up and down his field and whatever he did not plant, he's going to pull up by the roots. He's going to get rid of it. The point being here 
that God is the farmer and he's going to go up and down his field and he's going to uproot whatever does not belong to him. Many years ago when I pastored another church, I lived in a parsonage and between the church and the parsonage was a side yard. And so my wife and I decided to plant a garden in the side yard. It was the first garden I've ever planted being a city boy. And I must say it grew very nicely. There were a few little rabbits. They would nibble on the Brussels sprouts. I was okay with that. And, and as the garden was growing, I noticed some plants I did not put in there. I had no idea what they were. So I was going to yank them out. My wife said, no, leave it there. Let's see what it is. It's obviously not a weed. I said, but I didn't plant it. I don't want it. And I'm wondering, how in the world did plants get in my garden? So we let it grow. Ends up they were peppers. We all eat peppers, but these were very hot peppers. I don't eat hot peppers. I have no intention of eating anything that makes my nose run. I don't enjoy eating while I'm tearing or my brows are sweating. I just don't understand why people do that. But some people like that. And so when finally the peppers came through, we harvested them and I gave them away to the folks at the church. And people were, some people were taking them and, and eating them. And Skip comes along and says, oh, you finally got the peppers. I said, you know about this? He goes, yes, I planted them there for you because your people like spicy food. <laughs> I don't even like curry. <laughs> Here in the story, another parable, Christ says, God will come and he will pluck whatever does not belong to him. I will yank them out, referring to, of course, the unbelieving Pharisees. The point is this, look, the Pharisees' disregard for the word of God, their disregard for the word of God, and their personal replacement of God's law with their own laws, with their own standards, points to the fact that they are not God's plants, points to the fact that they are not God's people. If you disregard the word of God, it is, a, it is a, 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 a finger pointing at the fact that you are not one of God's people. If you're going to take God's word and discard it, you must not be from God's field. Uh, look what, at what Jesus Christ said earlier in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, if you want to go over there, it's verses 11 and 12. I'll paraphrase it for you. Jesus Christ said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, many people who are not Jews are going to come and recline at this same table. Verse 12. Meanwhile, the sons of the kingdom, the sons of Israel, will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The very people from the nation chosen by God will be cast into hell. Why? Because they are not really the people of God. And here, the telltale factor is that they rejected the word of God. The Pharisees, Jesus Christ is saying, are not to be looked at to as examples of faith and obedience to God. Oh, but they look so religious. 
They look so pious. They do all the right things. Christ is saying, don't look up to them as your example of what it means to have faith. My friends, let me remind you, the saving faith is not about being religious. Saving faith is not about doing the right things. Faith is not about circumventing God's law with your own ideas, as good as they might be. Faith is not about looking and acting spiritual. Saving faith is not about looking more spiritual than the people you hang out with. Faith is not about external ceremony. Saving faith is not about keeping rules after rules after rules. Saving faith is about trusting in Jesus Christ. It's about placing your faith in him It's about repenting of your sins and giving your life, giving your heart to Christ Jesus. That's saving faith. It has nothing to do with religious form. Of course, it's Peter at verse 15 who is now going to be once again the spokesman for the 12. And he asks the question, Can you explain this to us? Can you explain this to us? And the response of Jesus Christ at verse 16 is rather, well, there's an element of surprise there. You'll notice in the words of Christ, he says, are you still without understanding? By now you should be understanding. Are you still dull in this matter? And the point of Christ is clear. Anyone who understands the word of God, understands Jesus Christ to be the Savior. If you do not understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that's because you do not understand the word of God. The Pharisees and the scribes did not see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, therefore they did not understand the word of God. Because they did not understand the word of God, they could not see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus Christ attacks their misuse of God's word. And whereas I don't think we are like these Pharisees who will use God's law against God's law, I do think that we are often guilty of abusing God's grace. Have you considered that? You abuse God's grace? You abuse God's grace when you sin in order to receive grace. I remember a young man sitting in my office and he was just overtaken by his girlfriend. But he was also overtaken by his guilt. And he said to me, but pastor, the more I sin with her, the more grace I get. Of course, the scriptures speak to the matter. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The question is asked, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? (laughs) The more I sin, the more grace I get because I am forgiven by grace. I am saved by grace. I don't deserve it. God gives it to me. So the more I sin, well, the more grace I get. Don't you want more grace? And so the human reasoning is, well, then I'll sin more and I'll get more grace. 
But the answer in verse 2 is, by no means should you continue to sin in order to receive more grace. In fact, that same chapter, Romans 6, verse 14 reads, sin is to have no dominion over you. You have been saved in order to break the chain of sin, not in order to be allowed to sin. My friends, we may not add to the law of God or try to justify our own reasoning per se by using the law of God against itself, but we do tend to abuse grace. We abuse God's grace when when I feel that I can sin because I'm going to be forgiven anyway. That's abuse of grace. In fact, in my opinion, abusing God's grace is more sinister than what the Pharisees were doing. We abuse grace when we feel that we can take God's grace instead of allowing him to give it to us. We abuse grace when we ignore God's commandments. So you see, what we're reading here in Matthew 15 is very much for us today. God is speaking to us as he is speaking to these scribes and Pharisees, and he is saying this, don't justify your sin. Don't justify your sin. Well, let's take a look at the second piece of imagery that Jesus Christ gives, and that is of the blind leading the blind, as we come to our third main point. It's just verse 14. Look there. Jesus Christ said, in reference to the Pharisees, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. That is to say, pay no attention to these Pharisees who are insulted Disregard them. Give no heed to their external piety. Give no attention to their legalism. Why? Well, one, because they're plants that were planted in God's field and God doesn't want them. They're being yanked out. But also because they are blind guides. They are blind to the truth. They are blind to their own blindness. They refuse to see Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah. They are the blind leading their own kind. What kind? The other blind. In Luke chapter 6 verse 39, Jesus Christ said, Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the answer? No. Won't they both fall into a pit? What's the answer? Absolutely. You see, and like us, they were born blind. Spiritually blind. Blind and they don't even know it. And neither do the blind followers who are following them. Together, their destiny is awful. We see they all fall into the pit together. So let me encourage you, my friends, not only to see their blindness and the absurdity that it causes, but let me ask you to go home and examine your own eyes, your own spiritual heart. To what degree are you blind? Certainly don't be a blind follower because you will follow the wrong person. Blind follow the blind. Rather, acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 2 speaks to those who find themselves too, well, religious. Romans chapter 2, beginning of verse 19, reads this way. 
I'll paraphrase it again for you. You can read it word for word for yourself, beginning at verse 19 through 24, Romans 2. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, if you are sure that you are a light to those who are in darkness, if you are sure that you are an instructor to those who are foolish, that you are a teacher to those who are childish, because you have the law, you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who, who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who boast in, in the law, do you dis dishonor God by breaking the law? It is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And we've all seen it, right? Those people who say, oh no, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But then they find themselves doing things they should not be doing. And other people say, well, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'll have nothing to do with it. We actually blaspheme God. We are hypocrites. And we've all fallen into that category. The question is, when have we gotten out? How often do we keep falling into that category? How often do we stay there? Hypocrisy is displayed by our blindness. You know, and the truth is, some people are fully blind, spiritually blind. They need to hear the gospel. Many people are legally blind. We know Christ, but we are not growing spiritually. Some people simply need corrective spiritual lenses. We're on our way. We're on our way. And I would say don't slow down. Grow in your knowledge and practice of the word of God. Learn to emulate Christ. Learn to live out your faith from day to day. With this in mind, our goal is 2020 spiritual vision. That's our goal. You don't want to be spiritually blind. And so here is the primary standard for the Christian. Christ first, rules second. If you put rules first, Christ second, you'll have empty religion. If you have just rules and no Christ, you have empty religion. So it has to be Christ first, and then because Christ is first, I will seek to obey him. I will seek to do what Christ would have of me. And, and don't be afraid of that. It is a delightful life when we are living within the circumference of God's precepts. Because when you come out of that circumference, life becomes absurd. And your religion becomes empty. You will be the blind leading the blind. Uh, look at what Jesus Christ explains in verse 17. He says, whatever enters the mouth is digested and expelled. Literally, it reads this way. Whatever enters the stomach is then cast into the toilet. We all know that process. Whatever enters into your mouth is not what makes you defiled. It's not what makes you unclean. As long as it's potable, as long as it's edible, it simply passes through the natural process, inconsequential human process. However, verse 18, but in reverse, what comes out of your mouth is what makes you unclean. 
You see, the Pharisees were interested in looking pious, acting religious. Christ says, no, 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 no. What is coming out of your mouth is what makes you unclean. Why? Because whatever comes out of your mouth originated in your soiled, solely sinful heart. And so whatever comes out of your mouth is coming first out of your heart. And so these religious people actually have their priorities backwards. They're so concerned with what and how things are consumed, when in reality they should be concerned with what is in their hearts, what is pouring out through their mouths. What comes through your mouth reveals who you are. And this is something we can all examine ourselves for on a daily basis. What came out of my mouth today? That's who I am. What comes out of your mouth reveals who you are. And what you say reveals what is lurking there. In this case with these Pharisees, again, it was the blind leading the blind. People who don't belong to God, though they're very religious, their hearts are evil. This is what defiles a person. This is what makes a person unclean. This is what makes a person unworthy of acceptable worship to God, what's in your heart. And so the point of Jesus Christ is very clear. What you determine, what you are determines what you say, and what you say reveals who you are. What you are determines what you say. And what you say reveals who you are. These religious people had religion, but it was empty religion. And my friends, this does not need to be. Not anyone here needs to practice empty religion. You realize that around this world right now, today, there are millions of people worshiping an empty religion. And that is not necessary. Christ said, come to me and give me your heart. It does not have to be empty. He can transform your heart. He can transform your tongue. He can transform your life. He can transform and will transform your destiny. Come to me in faith and give me your heart. You know, eating with dirty hands may very well be unhygienic. It may actually be disgusting. You may ingest many germs, but it's not a sin. What is sinful is a pollution of the heart. That's what matters to God. Religion is valuable. Any religion is valuable. Only to the extent that it is tied to Jesus Christ in faith. Eliminate Christ. Eliminate faith in Christ. And your religion becomes utterly worthless. Christ wants your heart. Not your routine. Not your good works. Not your religion. He wants your heart. Your life. And he will treat it well. He will give you new life. Your heart will be changed. Then your life will be clean. How good it is to know that God is on our side, isn't it?
This is what he gives to us by grace, freely and willingly. And he offers it to you. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to be the people who are called by you, used by you, cleansed by you, transformed by you. We pray, O oh God, that you would do even more in our midst. Build us up in our knowledge of you, your word, and the practice of your truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would be repentant people, not ones who will justify our sin. We pray this in your good and holy name, O Christ. Amen.